0: Evening, everybody. So I want to begin tonight with a uh, by praising uh, Zazen can't hear at all. How am I doing, Shofi? can people hear me? Looks like no. Can you all hear me now? No, okay. Recording in progress. So I was starting to say that uh, I want to begin uh, talking about these next verses by um, praising Zazen because I think that in the end uh, the intent of this text of Vasubandhus is to elevate and show us the real virtue of Zazen and how profound Zazen is and how it has a profound effect on our way of seeing and living, even though we might not uh, get that all at once. But I really think that in the end, that's why Vasuband is writing this text. So I don't know how you guys are doing, but uh, we have a, a wonderful and pretty lively, well-attended sit in the morning, and I've been enjoying it a lot. Just this last Saturday we had a gathering at the church and this was very revolutionary for me because there was no Dharma talk and there was no dokusan So guess what I did? I sat Zazen with everybody. I never do that. I haven't done that for decades, right? It was great. I did four periods of Zazen, I think, just sitting there with everybody. It was a great thing, as is the sitting every morning. And I don't know why it is, but for some reason, I am really enjoying my Zazen these days. It is very steady and very quiet. And this, despite the fact that there are a lot of really difficult things going on, both in the world at large and among my good friends and relatives. But still, despite this, uh, my Zazen has been very pleasant and very peaceful. And I have been uh, practicing very directly with Vasubandhu's text. So what I've been doing these days is after I practice for a little while the sending and receiving meditation for the suffering of the world so that I can stay open in my heart with what's going on. So I do that for a while. But then I practice just being mind, just appreciating mind or heart or consciousness or whatever you call it, awareness, as it rises and falls away or doesn't rise and fall away. You know, one of the most basic and most fundamental teachings of Dharma, which seems like nothing, but is actually so important, and it's also an assumption of Vasubandhus, That there is no mind, you know, like a mind in which, as a container, you know, in which things arise. That things arise is mind. There's no other mind than that. In other words, there's no separate and independent function or entity or something called a mind. That's like one of the cardinal insights of the Buddha. So what arises in the mind and the mind itself are the same thing. Which means in the end, you know, there are no things and there is no mind. So I've been sitting these days in the middle of deeply appreciating this. Sitting there, seeing how the sound of the ocean, or the crows, or the rain, or the hum of the silence are themselves mind. It's mind-cognizing mind. There is just mind and there is nothing outside of phenomena called mind. Everything is mind. That's what Vasubandhu is saying. And and this practice, I think, is exactly what Dogen is talking about when he says in Fukan Zazengi, take the backward step and turn the light inward, illuminating the self. Then body and mind of themselves will drop away, and your original face will become manifest." I think that's the practice that Dogen is talking about when he says that. Stop looking at outward objects, and just turn the mind around and see that the outward object is mind. So that's what I've been practicing, and it's really wonderful. And then before I know it, the bell rings, it's like, what? I just sat down and the bell rings. So I'm sitting there these days astounded and amazed by this peaceful practice. And the fact that I'm my practice is going like that these days helps me a lot in sustaining my caring. That's what's helping me sustain, you know, all the caring that I'm trying to do for the world because it makes me realize that what is happening is simply what is happening. It must be as it is because of everything that has happened before and also it makes me realize that everything is always in the process of development and evolution and change. Right? Nothing ever stays the same. Things are always advancing and changing and moving. So to feel hopeless or to assume the worst is completely irrational. It makes no sense at all. For sure, what I fear or imagine or desire for the future is not what will happen. In the future, as in the past, there will be joys and there will be anguish, which is mind rising and falling. The ocean of being alive and dying. And in that ocean I can care. And if there's anything that I can do, I'll try to do it. And whatever happens I can feel very confident that this goes on. So I'm really appreciating all of this in my Zazen. And and I think this is completely Uh, apropos of what Vasubandhu is trying to teach us here. This is what he's trying to tell us. And so I hope you can appreciate this. And, And appreciating it in your breath and in your bones is much more important than comprehending Vasubandhu's complicated concepts which are great concepts, in many ways innovative concepts, while keeping completely in touch with Buddhist teachings, building on them, they're wonderful concepts, but it's much more important that you feel what he's trying to tell us in your body and in your bones, than that you can uh, somehow explain these concepts. So I wanted to start out with that kind of declaration and appreciation of Zazen, which is such a fabulous practice, really. So simple and so thorough. So now, uh, these next four verses. 22, 23, 24, 25. In these verses, Vasubandhu kind of changes tack a little bit and he's now talking about the three natures as a kind of progression of understanding. Remember in the bunch of verses that preceded these he's been making the point that these three natures both do and don't exist and when you analyze them they are not different from one another. They're anyway merely concepts, they're ideas, and so they don't really have any substance And Vasubandhu has constructed them as ideas in this way because the whole reason why he has constructed them is to match the reality of our living, which cannot be contained by our ideas, no matter how much we think it can. It can't. So he's constructed a set of ideas that, by definition, don't hold. The ideas that he's constructed are self-destructing definition. But now he changes his tune and he's saying, okay let's change this up and let's take these ideas as if they do exist and they do make sense and let's make sense of them in a very linear way. Let's imagine that these three natures are three stages of practice in sequence, each one building on the next. So verse twenty-two. But conventionally, and I'm now I'm I'm uh, this is J Garfield's translations, and, and if you have the Ben Connolly book there, you can you can follow in the Ben Connolly and see the slight difference. The translations are not really different in substance, but slightly in style. So this is J Garfield number twenty-two. But conventionally. The natures are explained in order and based on that, one enters them in a particular order, it is said. So the verse says what I just said, that let's look at these ideas, the three natures, conventionally, in other words, from a linear point of view, first, second, third, as a hierarchy of views of reality that we're going to develop during the course of our practice. 23. The imagined is entirely conventional, the other dependent is attached to convention, and the consummate cutting convention is said to be of a different nature. So the first level of understanding reality, the common level, is the first of the three natures, and it's the ordinary shared world that we all live in, in which there are separate things, there are persons with different interests and problems and points of view and so on. And the text says this is the conventional world. Conventional literally means agreed upon, shared. It's a shared, agreed upon reality. Doesn't make it real. In fact, Vasubandhu says it's anything but real, but it is shared. And even though we all know when you really get close, everybody lives in their own world, you know, everybody's seeing a different. Table when they all look at a table, but as a shared reality, we all agree, oh, it's a table. And so, uh, as human beings, we have a shared human reality. Other kinds of creatures have a different reality that they share because of their genetic structure and their brains or lack of brains. So even though we have different languages and cultures and different personal histories, We all more or less share the idea of of a person, of, of things like plants and animals, furniture, houses, sky. We all share concepts like family, feelings like love, pain, life, death, suffering. This is shared conventional reality. The word conventional comes from the Latin word for convention, which means like, you know, it's, a, it's an English word too, a convention. People get together and they, and they make an agreement. So this is the imaginary reality, the agreed upon reality that we all depend on in order to live together. This is not a trivial thing, by any means. It is really important. But the problem, and and that's actually what Vasubanda was trying to do, is trying to help us see how important it actually is, not in the way we think it's important, but in another way. Because the problem with the way we think it's important is that it becomes the basis for all of our pain and suffering. Pain and suffering are built into this from the ground up, and because of that, it causes us to behave in such a way that we make much more pain and suffering than is necessary. So that's the first view of reality, the imaginary, the shared, conventional view. So this is, I think, this is to me like, I was thinking this week when I was contemplating this, this is really the essential point. And this is why it's so clear that this teaching of Vasubandhu is very specifically a Mahayana teaching because it really is about fundamentally preserving the true importance of the imaginary world not escaping from it or ignoring it or denigrating it the three natures teaching has the purpose of showing us The real nature of the imaginary world, so that we can really respect it as it is, and really know how to live in it, so that we can be of benefit to others. That's actually what he's arguing here. And as I said in the beginning, and and Zazen is a way to make this real uh, in our lives. So the second line of this verse I just quoted says the other dependent is attached to convention. Or you may have noticed in Ben and Wei jen Tang's translation, they say, is the maker of conventional existence. So now we're talking about another level of understanding our conventional existence. In the first level, where there's no practice or maybe we're just beginning to practice, we are living naively in the imaginary world as we have received it, you know, from our culture, from our parents, from our schooling. We're living in it naively, in an imaginary way, and suffering in it. Whether we are really having a lot of problems and a lot of suffering, or we're not having suffering at the moment, but later on we will. Then, at some point, we notice that something's not right. We notice that the way we're living and looking at things is not working out. So we start to practice. Where well, That's what motivates us. Something, I mean, we may be like in tremendous anguish or we may just sort of have a vague feeling something more is needed here. So we start to practice and eventually we do begin to realize that the self that we have been fixated on and defending and wanting to improve, we say, I'm going to work on this and I'm going to work on that, we realize that that is not what we thought it was. That we are essentially connected to others and the world. And our self is not exactly us. It's something in flux, it's something porous, it's something connected. It's something always influenced. So we really begin to see that the imaginary world of completely independent things and persons, each one standing over against the other, was never really that to begin with. Everything is connected. Everything depends on everything else. And as we're learning very specifically in this text, and this is the key thing about this text, everything also depends on mind. On consciousness, nothing would exist for us without consciousness. We have been living as if the world were out there. Now we see that the world is very close and very intimate. Which means that we have the ability to practice with our mind and so literally change the world that is making us suffer because we change the way we situate ourselves within mind. So this is really important, this second stage, which is probably, I think, the stage that all of us are in. We've been practicing for a while and our lives are different, you know, we see and feel and live differently. But still, we do take the imaginary world as it is, more or less. So there's more to realize, more to appreciate. So this is the second stage. And the final line of the stanza describes what this more to appreciate is. What there is more to realize. We realize, that is, we make real, the understanding that the conventional doesn't exist at all as such, whether other, dependently, or independently. Complete realized nature is not a better description of the conventional or another way to look at the conventional. As the verse says, it cuts the conventional. It's utterly other than the conventional. Which means This is what Vasubandhu is saying. It sees the conventional as conventional, that it's not real in any other way, and so is free of it. There's no stickiness in the conventional. You look at the world with eyes of unselfish compassion and deep sympathy without being stuck. And this is why the Bodhisattva can reach out a helping hand without being caught up in the tragedies and the confusions of the world. And that's the specific way that a Bodhisattva is uniquely a blessing for the world. Because the Bodhisattva sees the world as it really is, and so really understands, really sympathizes with suffering and that is why the bodhisattva can offer a special kind of comfort and meaning for the suffering. And and that bodhisattva complete realized way of being in the imaginary world is the final horizon of practice according to Vasubandhu and this text and specifically in this linear description of the three natures. So here, in these verses, he's showing the graduated stages of practice, beginning with the conventional, through the dependent, to the completely realized. That's all in that one verse that I just read. The next verse changes the order. This time, it begins with the dependent and shows how practicing the dependent nature leads to the complete realized nature which is nothing other than the imaginary or conventional nature seen as it really is. In other words, there's no content to the complete realized nature other than the conventional nature seen as it is. And this reminds me of the ox herding pictures, you know, which goes through all these different stages and ends up returning to the marketplace. Or it's like Dogen's saying in Genjo Koan, flowers fall and weeds grow at the end of his hierarchy of, you know, enlightenment, understanding. Or it's like the old Zen saying, mountains are mountains, rivers are rivers. In other words, the end of practice, the complete realized nature, is simply living in the world as it is. Everyday mind is the way. So here's the verse that says this. 24 Having first entered into the non-existence of duality which is the dependent one understands the non-existent duality which is the imagined. So The complete realize is not mentioned here, but it's implied in the last two verses. So now we come to this exalted stage of practice that I mentioned a minute ago. And here we see that the separation, the duality that we have always assumed and taken absolutely for granted because everything points to it, is not real. It never was real. Our whole lives we've been buying into conventionality, and now we are seeing beyond it. We are no longer as paranoid and self-protective as we once were, which makes our lives much better, much easier. We see, as the verse says, the non-existence of duality. And then we go beyond that. We see by close examination, or maybe all of a sudden, Maybe it just dawns on us one day day in Zazen or not in Zazen. Maybe in the middle of a Dharma talk. Did you ever have that experience where in the middle of a Dharma talk you suddenly get something, you don't even know what the person said, it doesn't matter what they said. Or maybe you hear a bird or see a tree or something. But you realize all of a sudden, and maybe you don't put it in these words, but you realize all of a sudden that the only thing there ever is going on ever is this experience, this moment. There is nothing outside of it. There is nothing inside of it. And we can never know anything other than what we cognize with the senses and the mind. And neither can anyone else. Reality is actually the experience of reality. And there is no reality out there And there's no one to experience a reality out there. There's no one to get credit for any of this. And there's no one to complain to. And there's nothing to hold on to or or to identify with or to possess or be certain of. And the way they say that in Zen is, just this. Just this, which is everything always, and nothing ever, just this, arising and passing away all the time, both existing and not existing, as Vasubandhu will soon say. So to see beyond the conventional, to cut off the conventional, as he says in this verse, doesn't mean that the world disappears, it means that you see and experience the world in all of its beautiful ineffability. You do not know what it is. One bright pearl, as Dogen writes. Everything absolutely complete, every moment. Everything ungraspable and unexplainable. The 25, verse 25. Then one enters the consummate, the complete realized. Its nature is the non-existence of duality, therefore it is explained to be both existent and non-existent. So this verse completes the thought. The non-existence of the apparent duality of the world and person, of this and that, of reality and an experiencer of reality, none of that exists. That's the complete realized nature which, as he says, both is and isn't. I looked at the, uh, the, you know, Ben's book has the, the Sanskrit original in the back, and I looked it up, and it seems to say something like, it is thus both existent and non-existent, meaning something like, therefore, since it is the non-existence of duality, and don't forget, the most fundamental duality of all, right, is existence, non-existence birth and death. But these, the realities, do not hold. Therefore, it must be both non-existent and existent. But the trick part is the word thus, you know, like you make an argument, you say blah 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 blah, thus my conclusion. That word in Sanskrit, and this is what I was checking for, is the word "tata." T-A-T-H-A. which means thus, it's oh, the name of the Buddha Tathagata. But it becomes a really important term in Zen. Thusness, just as it isness, just thisness. And so, in Ben's translation, he focuses on the word thus in a way that Garfield does not to make this sort of bring this to us. He, this is uh, Ben and uh, Wei Jung's translation. Then one understands the realized the existence of the non-existence of duality, for then it is just thus. It is said to be and not to be. So, in Zen lore, a lot of the Zen stories, right, are about somebody experiencing thusness. Seeing the thusness of the whole world in the thusness of just one thing, or even of our own mind as the whole world, in the thusness of a thought or a feeling, things just being as they are, neither real nor unreal, neither existing nor not existing, these are words, but sometimes you know you feel that without the words, necessarily, actually, by the time you apply these words it 's not it 's already something else, but you feel it sometimes so here. Vasubandhu is making the point that gradually, as a, as a set of stages, through these three uh, stages, you will you will come to this. That more and more, you will view reality all the time in this way. And you will live in this reality of the completely realized nature. So that, uh, that completes uh, the section of verses 22 to 25. These four verses that are about the conventional understanding of the three natures as three progressive interconnected stages of practice. Now, and I'm going to go on a few more verses, a lot of verses tonight. The next few verses, he returns to the idea of the three natures as unconventional and nonlinear. In verse 26, he says, they are impossible to cognize or know. And that, strictly speaking, you cannot say, say they exist at all. So, the stages of practice that he's just outlined, forget about it. You shouldn't think of them because he knows the first thing we're going to do is say, well, what stage am I in and how do I get to the next stage and all that. He said, no, no, don't bother with that because this none of this exists, you know. I'm just talking. <laughs> That's what he's sort of saying takes it away as soon as he, it's very, you know, people think Zen invented all this stuff. No, it's already here in Vasubandhu. Verse 26, These three natures have the characteristics of being non-cognizable and non-dual. Non-cognizable and non-dual. If something is non-dual, it's like nothing. You know, you can't, the only way you understand something or recognize something as something is if it's not something else. But if it's not, not something else, it cannot be recognized, it cannot be cognized. So these three natures have the characteristics of being non-cognizable and non-dual. One is completely non-existent, the second is therefore non-existent, and the third has the nature of that non-existence. It's almost like funny, right? So, so the first nature, the imaginary nature, is imaginary. It, it, it doesn't actually exist even though we think it does. And the dependent nature is just, as we said, a more sophisticated and accurate and nuanced understanding of this thing that doesn't exist, so it doesn't exist either. Just just a, a view of something that doesn't exist, so it doesn't exist. And the third nature, the complete realized nature, as I said before, is nothing on its own. It's just the recognition of what the other two natures actually are. Just mind. Just illusions. So in a way, this means there's nothing to this at all. No big realization we're supposed to develop. No great progress we're supposed to make. No stages we're supposed to progress through. Just being alive. Is it? So, uh, Ben quotes a little story about Layman Pong, which I think is very apt here. Layman Pong is, you know, reading a sutra, thinking about the teachings, and he says, "Ah, difficult, difficult, like trying to store bushels of sesame seeds at the top of a tree," meaning like practically impossible. But then Mrs. Pong says, no, no, it's easy, easy, like touching your feet on the floor when you get out of bed. Nothing easier than that. And their daughter, Ling Zhao, says, neither easy nor difficult. It's like the teachings of the ancestors shining on a hundred grass tips. Just look at those grass tips with little specks of dew on them. That's it right there. So don't you feel this is true, you know, practices like this. I mean on the one hand, it's very difficult and it's very profound. These teachings are incredibly deep and various and there's so many of them and we make such a diligent effort and we respect the practice and we try hard and we respect the teachings and we study them and, and we respect our teachers and we honor them. You work at it, you develop yourself over time, and you never ever master it, because it's too difficult, there's too much to it, you'll never get to the end of it, not even close. But also, it's so easy, because it's there in every moment of your life. It's never anywhere else, but right there in the middle of your experience all the time. It's so close to you, you can't see it. And everywhere you look, inside and out, the only thing you ever see is the Dharma. So I now, in a couple of verses, and I'll stop with these. Vasubandhu gives an analogy that's supposed to make it clear. I don't know if it does, but here's the analogy. Like an elephant, number 27. Like an elephant that appears through the powers of a magician's mantra, only the percept appears. The elephant is completely non-existent. This is an example that's often used. So, there's a magician who is a very good magician. He can use spells or maybe some kind of mental telepathy or some way of, you know, maybe the power of suggestion. I don't know. But he conjures up an elephant. So the imaginary nature is you seeing what you take to be, ah, look at that. There's an elephant out of nowhere. It's really an elephant. The dependent nature is you're realizing that there's no elephant. There's an illusion there. Looks like an elephant. It's not an elephant. And the complete realized nature is to directly perceive in the image itself of the elephant, the non-existence of the elephant, the emptiness of the elephant. So the complete realized nature is not really a truer interpretation of the image of the elephant than the naive interpretation or the not-so-naive interpretation, but a direct experience of the image as what it really is. An image created by the magician who is your mind. As Vasubandhu explains in the next verse, the imagined nature is the elephant, the other dependent nature is the visual percept, and the non-existence of the elephant therein is explained to be the consummate. So that Dear Dharma brothers and sisters, is my perfectly cogent and totally understandable explanation of these verses. I have no expectation that all of you will remember all that I'm saying or even a single sentence of it. So I will now reduce it all to something very simple. And I I would say it like this. This world is imaginary. It is more profoundly imaginary than you could ever imagine. So let's imagine it truly and beautifully and humbly and with love. Really and truly, I think it comes down to that. So, I was telling you in the beginning about how uh, I've been influenced by these teachings in my Zazen and and in my living, so the question is, what about you? So we can get in groups and and talk about that, and um, first though I want to, because I know sometimes people uh, leave at this point, and of course it's fine for you to do that, especially if you're on the East Coast, it's very it's late. I want to just mention, so that we all remember, that we're going to take a break from seminar for two weeks. So we won't meet next week, and we won't meet the week after that. Our next meeting will be on January 10th, and we'll take up this same text from there. And we'll stay with it through the rest of the month. And then uh, in February, we're going to sit at Green Gulch on the 3rd of February, which is a Saturday, and that's when we're going to start our practice period. So uh, we'll, we should get busy, I guess, getting gearing up and putting up the announcement on the website so that you can all apply. It's going to be from the 3rd of February to the 13th of April with our dear Lor, who's going to be the most amazing chuseau, I have no doubt that you've ever seen. She may give her dharma talks in French to make the whole thing even more wonderful. I don't know if she will or not. But Okay, so two weeks off, and we'll come back in January and looking forward to practice period. And for now, so how have these teachings influenced your practice? And if they haven't, Uh, it is perfectly okay to say actually, you know, I've just been tolerating all of this it hasn't meant a damn thing to me and it hasn't influenced my practice at all and if so, it's better to say that than to try to fake it and pretend that it has meant something that it hasn't something has meant something to you, right? in the last month or so something has influenced you and, and if not these teachings, then talk about that because if you're impervious to influence, you're not a human being. So something has influenced you. Okay, have fun in your groups of three. And I'll see you in about uh, maybe Recording 15 more minutes. 15 to 20 minutes. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Appreciate it.